The Gospel lesson for this third Sunday after Pentecost comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. You can find it on page 734 of the Pew Bible. In this Gospel lesson, Jesus speaks some rather difficult words, but if we trust him and take his words to heart, we will experience his peace and joy. Please stand again as you are able for the Gospel. From Luke 9, beginning at verse 51, we read in Jesus' name. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear children of God and disciples of Jesus Christ, your Lord, Jesus Christ, requires nothing of you. And yet, at the same time, he requires everything of you. This is the paradox of the Christian life. Salvation is free, forgiveness is free, grace is free. That is literally what the word grace means. It's free. There is nothing you must do, there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor or become his child. It's free. Your Lord, Jesus Christ, paid the entire cost with his holy and precious blood. This is the great and central truth of the Christian faith, and we must hold this firmly and faithfully if we wish to be saved. To depart from this truth would be to abandon freedom, forgiveness, and life, and to return to slavery, condemnation, and death. Your Lord, Jesus Christ, requires nothing of you. There are no buts about this, and there's not even a catch. There is... A paradox. On the one hand, your Lord Jesus Christ requires nothing of you, and on the other hand, he requires everything of you. Now, this might sound like a contradiction, but it's not. It is a paradox. And here's the difference between a contradiction and a paradox. Uh, the law of non-contradiction. And here, this is a term you might hear in a philosophy or a logic class, the law of non-contradiction says that a thing cannot be both true and not true at the same time and in the same way. That would be a contradiction. And so a contradiction is not really possible. 
It can only exist in the mind or in words, but not in reality. A paradox is different. A paradox is something that might seem like a contradiction, but there is some difference, usually in the way that the two statements are true. And the Christian faith is filled with paradoxes. Here are a few examples for you. The doctrine of the Trinity is a paradox. We worship one God, and that one God is three persons. Another one, the doctrine of Jesus Christ is a paradox. He is both God and man at the same time. He is not part God and part man, but he is fully God and fully man all at once. The nature of a Christian, you, your nature is also a paradox. We are sinners and saints at the same time. We are at once completely sinful according to our sinful natures and completely righteous according to the new nature in Jesus Christ. These are all paradoxes. And one more, the Christian life is also a paradox. Your Lord, Jesus Christ, requires nothing of you. And at the same time, he requires everything of you. How can this be true? The key is in the word Lord. What is a Lord? This isn't a word that we use very often in ordinary, non-religious vocabulary because we don't really have lords in our society, or at least we don't call them that. But here's my definition anyway, and I should state that this is just my own working definition. I don't really know how Daniel Webster defined the word, but I would define it this way. A lord is a benevolent ruler. Benevolent means nice, kind, generous, protective. A lord is a benevolent ruler. He uses his power to care for his subjects. And this is what it means, this is what we mean when we call Jesus our lord. He is the supreme authority in all the universe, and he uses his supreme authority for our good. And since he is the supreme authority, we are also, of course, subject to his will. We are bound to obey his commandments. We are bound to follow him wherever he leads us. And this is good for us because he is a benevolent Lord. Now this, this can be a frightening thing because we don't know where he might lead us. He may lead us away from earthly riches. He may lead us away from our homes and careers. Following him may even lead us away from those that we love. And I do not mean at all that it is God's will that we should be estranged from our families that God has placed us in. God placed us there for a reason. Leaving your family might be a violation of the fourth commandment, or if you're married, it would certainly be a violation of the sixth commandment. But that's the stumbling block for many in this text, right? Jesus seems kind of cold when he says to the one guy, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when the third guy says, let me first say farewell to those in my home, Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Seems kind of harsh because these are simple, pious requests that these men have. Attending your father's funeral or telling your family where you're going. These are both good works. We should do those things. But that's not what Jesus is attacking. Jesus sees, and we can see in the way these men talk as well, 
that both of these men, for both of them, their families had become their gods. They both placed following Jesus after their family relationships, and this is idolatry. Their families are first for them, and they both say as much. Let me first go and bury my father. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. For both of these men, their vow to follow Jesus is a contradiction. They both call Jesus Lord, and then in the next breath they say that something else is first. And that's a contradiction. It's not even a paradox. This is a flat-out contradiction. If Jesus is Lord, then nothing else can be first. Following Jesus means that everything is under his lordship. Our desires are subject to Christ. Our goals are subject to Christ. Even our own ideas of what is right and wrong are subject to Christ. And that really is one of the hardest parts. Both of these men had their own ideas of what is right and wrong. And they might have been right, but that was really Jesus' call to make. Do we trust Jesus to tell us what is right? If the answer is no, we're only following him insofar as we want to, which really means that we're not following him at all. It's really a matter of faith. Do we trust Jesus? Do we trust that the path he leads us on is the right path? Do we trust that his commandments are good, even the ones we have not yet learned and even the ones that don't make much sense to us? Both of these men tried to retain control over their own paths, and that was the problem. Instead, they should have simply said, I will follow you, Lord, period. And then you see what Jesus says. Maybe Jesus says, hey, isn't your father's funeral today? You should go to that. Or he might say, you should tell your mom where you're going. And maybe that's what Jesus would have told them to do had they agreed to follow him, period. Or maybe Jesus had something else in mind. But we don't know because they did not trust Jesus with that. They did not trust that whatever Jesus commanded of them is truly best. We do this too. Emphasis on the word we. Someone asked me once if uh, I preach about sins that I struggle with. I kind of laughed and said, if I didn't, I wouldn't have much to say. Here's what we do with the doctrines and the commandments of God. We retain veto power. You know what I mean? We're kind of afraid to submit to whatever our Lord says before he says it, or at least before we learn that he already said it. Or we're cool with most of it, but there are a few things we kind of don't really like. And so we kind of hold on to this right that we can really be the judges of what we will believe and what we will do. That's what I mean by veto power. And so think about this with me. Let's suppose you're reading your Bible tomorrow morning and you read something that you really don't like. What are you going to do? Do you ignore it? Do you say, that can't actually mean what it says? Do you say, that can't be right because that's not what I believe? That's what I mean by veto power. But here's the thing. If Jesus is Lord, then there is no veto power. If Jesus is Lord, then I am not Lord. Whatever Jesus says is right, and whatever Jesus commands is good. 
even if we do not understand and even if we do not agree. So think about this a little bit more. No two people ever agree on everything, right? I mean, members of the Trinity excluded, they always agree on everything because they're always right, so they have no disagreements. But for everyone else, we are going to disagree on something, and that's because we can be wrong, and we often are wrong. And so when you stumble upon something where you and God disagree, who's right? Now, in the moment, we, of course, think that we're right. That's the nature of having an opinion. And so it's really hard in the moment to step back from that. So think about this in the abstract. Before you get to those things where you actually disagree with God, who is going to be right? You or God? We have to think about this because there will be times when our values come into conflict with God's word. We have to be corrected. I guarantee you that will happen. And so what will you do? Who is truly Lord? If Jesus is Lord, then we trust what he says is true. And we trust that what he commands is good. And this is, what, this is part of what I mean when I say that Jesus requires everything of you. He is your Lord. He owns you. You don't have the right to say no to him. So let's go back to this word, Lord. Jesus became our Lord by purchasing us out of slavery. The small catechism describes this really well. It says, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, bought me and freed me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with silver and gold, but with his holy and precious blood and with his innocent sufferings and death, in order that I might be his own, live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. How did Jesus become your Lord? He purchased you. He bought you. That's what the word redeem means. And so he owns you. And this is good. It is good to be owned by Jesus. He freed you from sin, death, and the power of the devil. But that does not mean you are ultimately free. You are not autonomous. You are free from the evil power that once held you, and you now belong to Christ. He is our Lord. As your Lord, Jesus requires nothing of you, and he requires everything of you. He requires nothing of you to become his subject. We enter into his kingdom by a gift of grace. He purchased us. He paid the price with his holy and precious blood and with his innocent sufferings and death. And now that we live in his kingdom by grace, we are under his lordship. But even this is a good thing. It's not some kind of bait and switch where Jesus lets you in for free, but then there's a high renewal cost. You know how some of those deals are. In those bait and switch deals, the company gives you a great deal up front, and then they make a big profit off of you later. Jesus does not bring you into his kingdom to make a profit off you. He brings you into his kingdom because it's good 
for you, all of it. Everything he does is good for you. His commandments are good for you. Even when he tells us to leave everything and follow him, that is because it is good for us. The everything that he calls us to leave behind is filled with false gods that will draw our love away from Christ and lead us back into slavery to sin, death, and the power of the devil. Jesus mercifully desires to spare us from that death. He is a benevolent ruler every step of the way. And in this way, being in the kingdom of God is like being in a family. And I mean a good family, the kind where parents love, protect, and provide for their children. And I know that not every child has such a family, and that is a tragedy. But every child should have such a family, and we pray that God would grant it. But here's what I mean by comparing the kingdom of God to a family. Children do nothing to become a part of the family. They're either born into it or they're adopted into it. Children do not have to earn or pay their way in. Children do not have to earn the love of their parents. It's a pure gift. But the parents also require things of the children, and this is good for the children. Now, I'm not talking about parents forcing their children to serve their wishes, like, son, go do my laundry. I'm talking about the commands parents give that are good for their children or for their siblings. Every night, all around the world, parents force their children to go to bed, and this is good for them. They tell their children to brush their teeth, eat their vegetables, stop hitting your sister, do your homework, all those things. Even when parents command them to do something like mow the lawn, this is teaching them responsibility. A perfect parent, if there were such a thing, would give many commands to their children, and every one of them would be good for the child. And that's what I mean when I say that being in the kingdom of God is like being in a family. But it's actually, it's actually better to reverse that. Uh, being in a family is like being in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the big reality, and the earthly family is a dim reflection of it. A good family gives us a glimpse into the joy of being in God's family. Jesus requires nothing of you. That is, he doesn't need anything from you, and he won't accept payment from you. He purchased you. You paid nothing. He brought you into his kingdom by his own death and resurrection. This is what it means at the beginning of this gospel lesson where Luke says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place of sacrifice. The cross was waiting for Jesus there. And that's why Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He went there to pay it all. And so he requires nothing of you. But he also requires everything of you. He commands you to trust him in all things. He commands us to trust that he knows what is best for us. He knows even better than we do. Is that true? Yeah, it is. The one who set his face toward Jerusalem and paid the ultimate price for us is not going to turn around and hurt us. He's not going to lead us wrongly. He commands us to trust him in all things because he is the one worthy of all our trust. As an act of pure grace, he commands nothing of us and everything of us at the same time. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.